in today's show. And it's interesting because there's a lot of people now within MySpace who are talking about, you know, blocking time on their calendars and the power of no. Man, I'm a huge proponent of the power of yes. Like saying yes to a phone call, saying yes to a meeting, saying yes to an introduction, saying yes to a referral. Um, so I think there's the preparation part, but there's also just, you know, have the confidence to move forward with something and have the ability to get comfortable with um, with failure. Yeah. I think it's just important. Well, failure is a much better teacher than success. Yeah. I mean, I can tell <laughs> you, I, can, I think we all kind of know instinctually what to do within our businesses. But again, through the networking, talking to somebody who's in their 60s or 70s and them saying, these are three things that you just simply cannot do, that will save you a lot of heartburn. Yeah. In today's ultra-competitive business world, being a successful entrepreneur or business owner can be very challenging. Fortunately, contemporary times have blessed us with resources for tackling those challenges and getting us to success more quickly than we could have imagined. Welcome to The Root of All Success with The Real Jason Duncan, a podcast that explores how the world's most powerful entrepreneurs grow incredible companies. This podcast looks at the five keys to unlocking success as an entrepreneur. A successful educator turned entrepreneur, Jason's mission is to use his gifts of teaching and leadership to help others get the results they want out of life. Join Jason every week and learn the keys to grow a truly successful business. Welcome back to another episode of The Root of All Success. I'm the real Jason Duncan, and I'm so glad that you're joining us. Thank you for tuning in. Wherever you're listening to this, whether it's on a podcast player in your car or you're out for a walk or you're working out or you're just around the kitchen, around the house, whatever you're doing, thank you for listening. I really, really appreciate it. And the fact that you listen um, really makes me uh, happy that I'm doing this show and I got people that are listening because I'm trying to bring you, as I am today, very interesting guests with interesting stories so that it can encourage you to, uh, to accelerate your success as an entrepreneur. And so Brian Adams is my guest on the show, and uh, uh, I'm going to talk. I'm going to introduce him formally here in just a second. But there's a few things I want to talk about first. If you're not watching this on YouTube, you're missing out. Like this is we're recording in person today here at my office in Energy Light at Energy Lighting Services in Hendersonville, Tennessee, just north of Nashville, and uh, we set this up uh, just for recording. And at, we we've <laughs> we were talking. I was talking with Brian pre-show when I started recording this this show back in December of 2020. Uh, we were only doing live, and we were doing them at the Standard down at Nashville. And then ultimately, we kind of changed venues a little bit, moved it up here to Hendersonville. And I do most of my shows now, as you know, by Zoom, if you're watching this on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Duncan. But today, we're recording here at Energy Lighting Services. This is probably one of our last scheduled in-person recordings. It's just, it just becomes more and more increasingly difficult to do them in person. So I'm really happy that Brian's here because we've been trying to get him on the show for a while and it just kept, we kept having to reschedule and he's been such a good sport, but we're glad that he's here today. So again, thank you for subscribing. Thank you for leaving me a review. Thank you for watching on YouTube and subscribing. Hit the bell icon so you get notified when new episodes drop. But on that channel on YouTube, there's more than just the podcast. I produce a lot of other content related to entrepreneurship, leadership, financial literacy, 
and uh, in sales. So if you got any interest in any of those things, go check that out on YouTube. So let me talk about our guest for today. It's Brian Adams. And no, it's not the singer from the 80s. It's a different Brian Adams. He probably gets a, 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 a fair amount of his life. But Brian Adams is the president and founder of Excelsior Capital right here in Nashville. Uh, he spearheads the investor relations arm of the business. And uh, uh, he's got a lot of history in high-level investing and money. So I think we're probably going to be doing a lot of talking about money today, which is really good because so many people, especially entrepreneurs, are woefully inadequately educated on financial literacy. And they don't understand how, how finances really work. And so Brian, through his story today, will probably give us a little bit of insight into how we can take our money, the money that we're earning, and use that for good to make impact and to do and to grow wealth. He spent. He has ten years' experience in real estate private equity. So prior to starting Excelsior, he was with. He co-founded Prium Properties, and in 2010, he provided leadership and direction for the firm in connection with their capital markets, their investment management, and investor relations. He was also served on the board for Saram Partners, and which is a single-family office that's been investing across public and private assets since 2008, uh, and since. 2017, he served on the investment committee for uh, Solidus. Uh, am I saying that right? <laughs> Solidus. Solidus. I said it wrong the first time and I said it wrong again. Solidus LP, an early stage venture capital firm focused on investment opportunities in healthcare and tech. And uh, from January 16 to 18, he served as a member of the board of Next Gen Advisory ad Faculty for the Institute of Private Investors in Campton, a program designed to support next generation family members in preparing the following generation to be responsible as stewards of that wealth. And I, I've got questions about that because there's this idea, like if I create my first generation wealth and then I get second generation, what happens to it? And then by third, I think the statistics are that it's pretty much squandered away. So I wanna ask him about that. He's also served on the advisory committee for the Southeastern Family Office Forum since December of 2016. He's a former practicing attorney, earned his JD from Suffolk, Suffolk University and a BA from Wesleyan University. So. I want you to help me welcome Brian Adams to the root of all success. Brian, pretty good. I, me I messed up some of the words, but. <laughs> yeah, the problem is they're all kind of these abbreviations or there's these kind of obscure esoteric words that people use in private equity. So it's not your fault. It's just kind of the nature of the beast, but you did a good job. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for being here and thank you for being a good sport. I know that you, you, you and your team reached out about being on the show a long time ago mm -hmm. and we've just been trying to get this thing worked out. And we've 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 rescheduled, but here we are today. And uh, you might be the last person to record in person here, so thank you for for being here, man. It's an honor. I appreciate it. Yeah, we have a bunch of shared connections through Nashville, through the Standard Club, and so your name kept coming up. And we initially connected, fell off with COVID and all the craziness, and then had lunch with another member of the Standard who um, jogged my memory, and so I pinged you again. Um, and I appreciate you being comfortable with my thoughtful persistence, uh, but I'm glad we could finally do this. Well, it's worth it. It's yeah. worth it because I, and the reason I do this show, there's a couple of reasons. Number one, I, I like meeting great, cool, interesting people like you and expands my network and that's, that's interesting. But it's also for the impact for the listeners is to find out what, what, was, what, what was your story like and how does it relate to the other stories of the other people that are listening. So your whole life has been in, uh, around finances, it sounds like, your professional life around finances. Is that is that the way you see it? Well, I actually, so I'll give you kind of the brief spiel background. So I'm from New York originally. I married a Nashville native. So we met in college, 
did the Northeast thing for a little bit. Like you said, I went to Suffolk Law, which is in Boston. My wife uh, went to grad school up there as well. And I'm a liberal arts guy. So no finance educational background in college. I grew up very comfortable, but certainly not in a family office type world. And it wasn't until I joined my wife's family. And frankly, it wasn't until we were negotiating the prenup and she made all the disclosures that I understood the, the concept of what a family office even was, because I really wasn't familiar with the term. So it wasn't until I joined my wife's family um, that I started exploring this world of finance and private equity. Interesting. All right, so your wife is and her family evidently was involved and had a family office, which mm -hmm. it sounds like. Yeah. So you didn't really know what that was. And so no that idea. was your introduction, which is why the prenup was required. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so now that you're, how, how long ago did you guys get married? Oh, hard questions. <laughs> uh, we, it'll be our 14th year anniversary in May. What day? May 24th. All you're right. grilling May, me on the May 13th year. for oh, me. Nice. Her birthday's the 12th. Oh, okay. So May, with that, with birthday, anniversary, and, and Mother's Day, May is just a murderer's row for me, but. Well, I, when we got married, we, we will celebrate 27 years oh, this wow. May. Uh, we got married really young, but nobody told us, hey, don't get married on Mother's Day weekend. And it didn't even occur to us that it was Mother's Day weekend. And so for our entire life, we've, our married life, we've gone somewhere on our anniversary every year. And so that I've been away from my mom on Mother's Day every single year for, uh, since I got married. <laughs> Things you don't think about. Yeah, yeah, we got married on Memorial Day weekend which moves around a little bit and uh, it, it can cause some some issues with travel from time to time as well. We just didn't think about it. So. Well, it does at least have you have an anchor in your memory to go, oh yeah, that's about the time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you've been married. So 14 years ago, you're introduced to this yeah. uh, family office concept. And so did had did you had you earned your JD at that point, or you just had your BA at that at that point? I was a second year law student. Oh, I so you were on your way to get it? Yeah, I was a two L. Um, the um, and that's the summer that we got married. So okay. I was um, I was two years into law school. So two years into law school, you are, and she's a Nashville native, mm -hmm. and so you're from uh, up. Boston, upstate New York, upstate New yeah, York, middle of nowhere. But you went to school in Boston, mm -hmm. and then so you you're introduced through this process, your second year of law into family offices. So did your law, your pursuit of your law degree, shift a little bit once you understood? Holy crap, family offices is a lot of money, and there's investments, and there's did that affect you at all? Not really. I mean, so for us, the family partnership or the family office, we view it as. Um, giving people the opportunity within the family to do really two things. One, be of service to the community or to be an entrepreneur. We, we view it as providing a cushion. But importantly, within the culture of the family, everybody works. Everybody has a day job. Nobody can just work for the family uh, business itself. We don't have an operating company any longer. And so for me, my mission was always to be a prosecutor to be a district attorney. So I did both my summers at the DA's office in Nashville, Metro. And so I think more than anything, it reinforced my comfort because it's not a very high paying job, obviously being a DA, um, especially <laughs> I graduated in 2009. So it was probably the worst possible year to graduate from law school in the last <laughs> 25, 50 years. So it allowed me a lot of flexibility to, I volunteered at the DA's office for a number, for a year 
And then I worked part-time and then I finally did manage to get a full-time job once they released um, the DA's office was on a hiring freeze and was forced to cut the budget for a while because of the Great Recession. And so the the family office uh, infrastructure allowed us the flexibility to you know maintain our, our quality of life while we were figuring all that out. And my wife at the time was getting her doctorate at Vanderbilt uh, Peabody the Education School. So it didn't really change my mindset at that point. But once I started attending the meetings and learning about the Southern world, it definitely started playing the seed of becoming an entrepreneur. What was the, what was the kind of the, do you remember some concept you learned about money and investments and family offices that you went that I, I need to get into? Was there one thing or was it just a gradual shift into that world? You know, at first, um, I think it was more a learning experience, you know, between my father-in-law and our CIO and the GPs and sponsors and, and venture capital folks we were working with. It took me three to five years just to understand what the terms were, to be honest, because money was not something we talked about in my family growing up. My father is retired now, but he was an attorney, successful. My mother is a child psychologist, which we could get into maybe later. <laughs> this is very complicated. Very successful, you know, entrepreneurs themselves, but I never knew how much they made. I never knew how much we had. I didn't have a sense of the household budget. We went to private school our whole lives and we lived comfortably, but it was not something we talked about. And then when you join my wife's family, like I did, we have weekly staff meetings, quarterly board meetings, um, and it's all uh, very transparent and on paper. And it was a bit jarring at first, honestly, because I think probably like a lot of people listening, it's uncomfortable for some people to talk about money within the family context like that. Yeah. Well, so when you have, I mean, you have to have a certain level of wealth and, and access to resources to even open a family or even need mm -hmm. a family office. So if you've got a family office, you're talking millions and millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. So the, the level of necessary, or I guess the, level that level requires a necessity of transparency about finances that don't because i like you grew up in a family that you know my mom was a stay-at-home mom my dad worked uh, a corporate job and we always had what we needed but we didn't take extravagant vacations i didn't know anything and to this day i have no idea what my dad's salary was or what yeah. he made i don't know i just yeah. know that they're you know they're fine now and they're you know he's retired and they're fine and with my kids growing up you know like I, my kids are 21 and 19 now mm -hmm. and and they didn't really ever know anything about our money situation until more recently. I've been a little bit more forthcoming about, hey, this is what's happening. Why do you think? Why do you think families like yours and mine hold hold the finances close to the vest and don't tell their kids about it? Gosh, it's. I think it's a pretty deep seated cultural thing, and I don't know what your background was, but my folks are both kind of old school, kind of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant type people that are very insular, right? They don't want to let their emotions out necessarily. And money is a very emotional thing. And what I've learned is that money also has energy associated with it. And it, and it, it is imbibed with the energy that you impart into it. And what I mean by that is, you know, for our family um, here in Nashville, we think of, of the, the corpus of assets and, and the capital to be a driver for good within the family and within our community. I think some people just don't feel really comfortable necessarily with the amount of money that they have. And because it's something Americans don't really 
feel okay with discussing publicly. Like even just discussing how much you make on a salary basis is something that Americans typically don't want to talk about, right? Especially within the private sector. And so I think my parents always felt like maybe they were a bit embarrassed by the money that they had made because they'd done well for themselves. And I think also a big motivator, at least from my father's standpoint, is he really wanted to make sure that we worked. He never wanted to create some kind of illusion or a thought process that we could be comfortable. I mean, the work ethic, I mean, he was a grinder his whole career, yeah. you know, 80 hour weeks, 100 hour weeks working. And so I think he felt uncomfortable that if he were to show what the will looked like or what the personal financial statement looked like or what the household budget looked like, that for some reason we would think, oh, we could just go drink you know, margaritas at the beach and just hang out, which <laughs> not the case. My brother and I are both very hardworking people. But I think that's part of the, the thought process there. So when did your entrepreneurial kind of spirit begin? Was it as a child before all this happened or did it blossom through your law school days? No, it definitely was after I joined the family when I understood what this other world looked like. Um, and I remember what really hit home for me was um, being at the DA's office, you know, you get a step increase every year, right? So you make $37,500 initially, and then every year thereafter, you make a $500 or $1,000 increase. There's, it's, it's statutorily mandated how much you make. Right. Um, <laughs> that wasn't long-term for me, right? That's the kind of job that you do for 50 years or for five years, and I was not a lifer. And so I'd love the work, but I knew I wouldn't be there forever. So I started doing the coffee circuit. I'm very fortunate because my wife's family, I was able to get a lot of meetings with other folks in town. And I met with a lot of law firm partners because that's what I thought the trajectory would be for me. And so I started having coffee with a lot of these 55-year-old, 65-year-old white guys who were on the tail end of their careers from firms and pretty quickly realized that these people were all miserable had bad family lives. Some of them had some pretty serious substance abuse issues. And the striking part to me and what really made me evaluate the process of my own career was I had a number of them tell me that the value that they had created for the enterprise, i.e. the law firm, was directly correlated to the amount of time they did not spend with their friends and family. Mm. And I thought, that's a bad business model. That's terrible. It just was awful, super depressing. And you start thinking about that. I mean, they're basically high priced plumbers, right? When there's a problem or an issue, they get a phone call. And it's not really the quality of the work. I mean, to some extent it is, but they get compensated based on the hours they put in, right? So they're trying to get 2000 hours a year. If you do the math on that, it's a lot of time at the office. And then I realized this was the life that my father was leaving or had led. And I didn't want that to be my legacy of just, man, he really had a high pain tolerance and he was able to put a ton of hours into something. I thought that was a silly way to live. So when you started understanding this other world of money, the, the, the stars in your eyes about being a DA and an attorney kind of started to fade. And what was it about moving into that new area? Was it just simply to escape what could be this miserable life as a DA? Or was there some attraction also to the money side of things from an entrepreneurial perspective? Yeah, I remember um, I was a member of an organization in, in town called the Phoenix Club, 
which is a young men's professional leadership development um, organization that also helps raise money for youth-oriented nonprofits within Middle Tennessee. Josh Smith is a former member, so we used to have our lunches at the Standard. That's why I know a bunch of the Standard membership through Josh. And we were given the opportunity to attend one of Michael Bircham's, um a bridge version of a class that he teaches at Owen, which is the business school at Vanderbilt. Michael Bircham's a healthcare professional. He's had multiple exits, a really successful guy. And so we took a class called Launching the Venture. And it was an eight-week program. We met once a week at night for a couple hours, and he would teach an abridged version of the class to us. And the first day of class, he said, listen, before we do anything, let's just go through a thought exercise here. He put up the Fortune 500, the names, and he said, if you take away the people that are on this list because of marriage or because they inherited money, you're left with three buckets. People that worked really hard within a corporation and got public stock through some kind of vesting compensation plan. People that had a great idea in a garage and they took it huge, right? Think Apple and Google and all that. Or did, people, you, did you say Fortune 500 or Forbes 500? The uh, uh, Forbes 500. Okay, so you said yeah. Fortune, and then as sorry. you started to tell the story, I'm like, okay, you're talking about the people, not Forbes the companies. Forbes 500, sorry. Gotcha. Uh, which, are the, which is the list of the wealthiest The people. individuals, yeah. Yes, okay. Um, and then uh, people who had exposure to some kind of real asset, like commodities, oil, gas, timber, commercial real estate, et cetera. And I was like, that's probably one of the most profound, thoughtful things I've ever heard in my life. Super simplistic and very accurate to this day. And I thought to myself, well, I don't want to do the corporate gig. That's essentially what the law firms are. Right. I don't have a great idea that I think I can spin up in my garage. And you know, I knew a little bit from venture capital investing that it's just a very low probability event. And I thought, man, I know a bunch of people in commercial real estate that don't work super hard. They're not the smartest guys in the world. They seem to do really well for themselves. We'll start having coffee with these real estate people and figure this out. And here I am. So that's that one thought exercise with a guy leading you to this realization that all these super wealthy people, you know, there's only really three tracks yeah. that you have access to, and the one is only the one that you want to do. So. And you see that fact pattern over and over again, right? I mean, if you think about people that are super successful in your life, ultra wealthy, it really does fall within those three buckets. Mm -hmm. I don't think most people think about that. I don't, I don't think they think about how the generations of wealth are, are created and accumulated and then passed on, which I'm... I don't want to do it yet, but at some point in our conversation today, I want to talk about what you're doing to help the, the generational passing mm -hmm. of wealth. So, so will your money, the, the money story for you really working in that industry as an entrepreneur was first in real estate, correct? So what, what did you do first? What was kind of your first gig, your LLC or whatever you started to help? Yeah, um, I connected with two partners two New Yorkers who also married Nashville natives. The three of us started a company. I got my broker's license um, and I started doing leasing deals. So I was basically a tenant rep broker as a side hustle to practicing law and learned a lot really quickly through that experience, obviously, of working with, I had a vape shop 
uh, owner that I've found some some spots for. I'd work, worked with a dog grooming company. I did a lot of odds and ends stuff. And the power of the network started to really come home to me. And then we initially um, bought some property in Music Row, Germantown, um, and, and some other kind of urban infill locations. This would have been 2010, 2011. And started initially just finding deals on behalf of ourselves and the family. And then it became friends and family, and, and we can get into it if you want. But uh, at this point, we have a huge, a broad network of investors that we work with. But initially, it just was three of us as a side hustle. And we were all still had our kind of straight jobs, as we say. So is that was that Priam? Was that the, was initially that? it was Priam? Okay, yeah. so that was Priam, and then at some point you decided to start Excelsior. So yeah. What? So tell me about that. <laughs> There's probably not enough time uh, to go over the mistakes I made and, and the journey that was Priam, but I'll give you kind of the short version. So one of the partners left the partnership and it was a bit of a divorce scenario that taught me a lot of lessons. But initially Priam, you know, and I have a presentation that I'll send you the link we can put in the show notes. At first, um, I realized speaking to a lot of these commercial real estate folks, the thing they hated the most was the capital raising. So these developers or these syndicators or these fundless sponsors or whatever part of the business, raising the money was their least favorite part for the, when you talk to them. But obviously, it's a super capital intensive business. And so I thought, I'm going to flip the script here and I'm just going to totally embrace being a salesperson, being a marketer, and I'm going to lead with being able to raise capital. And then I'll rely on my partners to really help me on the deal side. And so I would do, um, I would do five meetings a day and 10 phone calls a day. Because an old sales buddy of mine, a mentor, he's a Northwestern Mutual sales rep, uh, which they have an incredible sales program. He told me, you know, don't leave the office on Friday until you have meetings set up every day the next week. Even if it's your dad and your brother and your uncle or whoever, Get the meetings on the books, get the calls in the books, and just make it happen. And so that's that's how I kind of started the business initially was ground and pound. Just as many meetings as I could get, constantly doing coffees, phone calls. I didn't understand marketing at the time, so it really was just pure sales. Getting introductions, making introductions, referrals. Um, and then it kind of went from there. But through that process, I cracked the secret sauce of how to raise capital from individuals, uh, which we can get it to if you want. But that was really my part within the partnership is I was the biz dev, IR, sales, whatever name you want to put on it. But but that was the value that I that I gave to the partnership initially. So there were three of you who were partners and your your role ended up being I was the biz dev guy. Mm -hmm. I went out and created, got the cap, capital and the cash that we could then invest in these other things. Yeah. And there was ultimately this divorce. But I, before we get to that, because I wanted, I'd like to know a little bit about that story. But so, what is the secret sauce? Uh, <laughs> that's an interesting thing. I'm sure people would like to know about. Yeah, and I've got a presentation that it's free, just because this is the question I got the most. I still get the most from people on LinkedIn or aspiring entrepreneurs. I mean, we have real estate specific uh, intelligence that we can provide to you, but conceptually, it's the same. If you're a first time entrepreneur, first time sponsor. Raise the money is going to be the hardest part for you. Good and the bad. The, the, the bad is that um, it is hard. The good is everyone's terrible at it. 
<laughs> so if you just take it a little bit more seriously and have a thoughtful infrastructure around it and a process in place, you'll be a top decile capital raiser very quickly. And so what I found was um, most of the time when you get pitched, like if I was pitching you, this is a very binary transactional conversation. I'm asking you for time and money and I'm offering you a widget and you're saying yes or no. And that's how most people do it. What happens is it's the ego pitch, I call it, where I spend all my time finding this beautiful little piece of art that I think is going to be a great investment. I put all this time into it. And then secondarily, I realize I've got to raise a million dollars around this thing. So then I haphazardly, after putting all this time and effort into the deal, haphazardly, then I go to my friends and family and I try to jam it down their throat. Like, you need this widget because I'm really smart. I spent all this time on it. I think it's a great deal. It's a beautiful thing. This is how it's set up. You need to do it, yes or no. Not a very effective way to do things. So I go into this in, in pretty brass tacks detail, but before you find this shiny little object, find 100 people in your world that actually will take a meeting with you. You list them in order of the most affluent to the least, and it's not a judgment of them as a person, but like this is the business we're in, right? Yeah. And you go to them and you, you know, this old adage of if you ask for money, you'll get advice. If you ask for advice, you'll get money. You go to these people from one to hundred and you ask them what they want. If you were gonna do a commercial real estate deal, what would you like it to be? Where do you want it to be? What do you want it to look like? How would you want me to pitch you? How do you want me to do the presentation? The return profile. No details too small here, right? And all you're doing is just writing stuff down. You're not asking them for anything. And when people want, if you give them the opportunity to talk about what they ideally want, they're going to tell you. And if they've done it before, which is why you start at the top, they've probably had some good experiences and some bad experiences. And so you take it all down, shiny notes and everything, and then you find a product that offers a solution set to their problems. And you give it to them exactly the way they want it. And then when you pitch it to them, you start at 100 and work your way up to one. That way you're not wasting your worst pitches on your best prospects. And so you go back up the chain. And instead of having to go through the tortured experience of the structure, the fees, the return profile, why, all you're doing is, hey, Bill, you told me this is what you wanted. Here it is. What's your allocation? it's going to be, it will work for you. It's going to be much more effective, but it takes a lot of forethought on the front end to go through that exercise of talking to a hundred people, but your conversion rate is going to be much better. That's very, that's very good. How long did it take you to figure that out? Six years, <laughs> about 500 <laughs> meetings, maybe more, maybe more. Wow. Well, yeah. that, it, it makes sense. I mean, from, from a, just a sales one-on-one perspective is what do you want? Okay. Then I'm going to fulfill the want rather than I'm going to try to create the want out of what I have. And, and that's why like the intro you did for me on the bio, nobody I pitch hears that. Nobody cares. What's in it for me? Yeah. You know, I, you average attention span is 12 minutes going down precipitously day by day, in my opinion. If you waste five minutes of the pitch talking about whatever great school you went to and how smart you are, you lost them. You yeah. lost them. Whereas my pitch is super simple. Deal by deal, direct co-investment, double digit yield, tax advantages. I can do that with you on a plane, at a football game, at a cocktail party. Everyone in my shop knows it. 
three things that we do because those are the three problems that my ideal customer profile has. Like I know my avatar has those challenges. I'm just offering them a turnkey solution set to them. So this was, you discovered this with Priam. The hard way the and hard then eventually way. flipped and then, the switch and we started raising a lot of money. We're gonna take a break from our show right now to bring you our sponsors. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear, check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner, check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right. Thanks for listening to our sponsors. Now back to the show. So when, so you had this divorce with your, you had a mm -hmm. one partner of the three decided or somebody decided that he or she should not be a part of that anymore. Uh, I have a, a I have a, a similarly painful experience. I'm sure. What 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 happened there? I mean, you don't have to get into a long story, but like, what happened? It's turning into a therapy session, um, <laughs> but it's helpful, right? So, what I tell yeah. people who who want to do this is the same um, advice I give to people about getting a prenuptial agreement. If you're not mature enough to have a conversation about what happens in death, disability, and divorce, you're probably not at a point where you should enter into a marriage or a business relationship. And that's where the legal background comes in handy because you do have a little bit of a pessimistic view on things because typically in the legal world, you're dealing with problems that could have been prevented on the front end, right? And this was definitely the case. We just didn't go through the detailed thought process of, of what happens in the partnership if we don't all want to stay in business together. And then when we weren't on the same page and things went sideways, it got pretty messy. The very short version of the story is we had an investor commit a million dollars. It was my first million dollar investor, period. And I had pitched this guy for three plus years. And one of the things that he said, a condition to his investment, was that all three of us would be full-time in the business, which I think is pretty reasonable. And he gave us lag time. He said, I'll give you a six-month window. I know you've got a, a lot going on, so you can close up your other jobs and transition. And, you know, three months pass, and he still doesn't want to give up his day job. Another two months pass, still doesn't want to give up his day job. We're 30 days out. And we finally just had to kind of pull the plug and have a very difficult conversation. But it was, I think, short-term painful, long-term totally the right move. Yeah. So. Well, that what you're referring to is a buy-sell agreement that's incorporated into your operating agreement as a, as a corporation or as an, as an LLC. Yeah. Because if you don't have that in there, you, you will not be partners with your business partner forever. Yeah. And it will either be through voluntary or involuntary means that you're gonna break that partnership. Right. And so, you know, it could be death, it could be, you know, divorce, it could be bankruptcy, it could be a lot of things, or it could be a, a severe schism in the relationship, which it sounds like you guys had. And, yeah. but, and, and it, it's, it's, uh, it's unfortunate, but it does teach you a lot of lessons. So now, when did Priam, did, was that the end of Priam? Did, is that why? No, so we, start? so um, Priam, you know, once I understood how to pitch, how to raise capital efficiently. And again, I'm only speaking to individuals and families. We can go into the differentiation between institutional money and, and non-institutional capital. We raised 
we probably bought $250 million worth of real estate in three years. Um, and another big mistake I made was falling into a trap of being just the deal guy. Like we had cracked the code on raising money. We had a bunch of, not a bunch, we had a, a, three or four young, hungry guys who wanted to go out and transact. So we acquired a bunch of real estate. I had no concept that <laughs> even though it's a real estate oriented company, it's still a small business. And so we did not have the proper resources for marketing, investor relations, communications, tax, bookkeeping, um, audit, HR, all these things that underpin the real estate investments themselves, but don't have to do with the transactions. These things got pushed off. And what happened was we just started growing so quickly and it, it couldn't keep the, 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 the infrastructure couldn't keep up with the growth on the deal side. And so we finally had to just kind of press pause, got our teeth kicked in by our investors for about a year, fixed it, recapitalized it with an institutional group, which is why I don't want to work institutional capital anymore. And so premium is still an ongoing concern. It's doing its thing. I'm still involved in a high level, but it's now working with these big private equity groups and Wall Street firms that I have no interest in working with. And so these lessons learned from Priam is why I started Excelsior, kind of a next iteration. Don't make these same mistakes. Understand the business better. Understand how to do the business, how to scale it efficiently. Um, and it's been great so far. And Excelsior started when? Four years ago. Four years. And that's, so you're doing real estate, real estate for uh, investors. Yeah, investors. and I'm, I'm going to use some jargon here, but we can break it down. Um, we're a pure play syndication platform. So we're only raising money deal by deal. So no funds, no commingling, no blind pools. We're only working with accredited but non-institutional investors. So high net worth individuals, families, independent wealth management firms, boutique shops, et cetera. And we're really focused on kind of commercial real estate that's going to give you that yield, that current distribution income on a monthly basis. That's who we are, that's what we do, and that's what we've been doing for three, three and a half years now after we started getting rolling. So this is the root of all success. So what would you, what would Brian Adams say that that word success means? So it depends on what hat I'm wearing. I've got two boys who are nine and six. A big goal of mine is to make sure they don't grow up to be jerks. Harder than you think based on my experience in life. And so that's success for me um, on the, on the family side, you know, on the business side, it's a great question. The answer for me personally is, you know, people say politicians, you hear kind of the backbone of America, small, medium sized businesses, but you don't really understand what that means if you're working in a corporate gig. But I think it's the truth after talking to a lot of people. And so for me, I tell people when they come on the company, when I hire them, if within a year you have not come to me and asked for an outrageous raise, ownership in the company, or telling me that you are going to leave to start your own thing, I have failed you. So my definition of success is if I can get five people to leave my firm after teaching them what to do, how to do things, and they each employ 15 people, which is kind of what we have today, I've been super successful. Because I would have created a, a great amount of wealth for people 
but more importantly, a quality of life for a number of families that they can go on and then do incredible things with. And so that's the goal for me. Well, I think what's interesting about your family side of success, you got your two boys, you don't want them to grow up to be jerks. But I wanna, I wanna tie that into this question, the curiosity that I have around second and third generation wealth. Mm. Because, you know, most, as Michael Burcham pointed out to you, most of those people in that, uh, that Fortune 500 list, uh, uh, Forbes 500 list, is, you know, they're, they're self-made, first generation. Um, so the second generation typically does a huge amount of squandering of that wealth. And then generally speaking, statistically speaking, third generation, it's eliminated. First of all, why do you think that happens in the second? What can we do? Because it seems like you're involved in helping protect that. How do you protect it? Yeah, so the concept you're referring to is what's what's often cited as shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. And it's interesting because almost every culture has that same saying. It's a little different, but in, in Europe, in Asia, Africa. Um, and so it definitely is. It's a truism. Um, first, the first thing I'll, I'll, I'll say is let's define a family office because it's a squishy term that people throw around a lot especially recently i don't think they have a good definition of it so for me it is a corpus of assets bunch of money that is meant to maintain a quality of life over multiple generations and avoid paying taxes what does that mean well if you've got a dollar and that's your corpus you figure and this is pretty timely because inflation is skyrocketing, but let's assume 3% inflation, which is really undercutting it right now, but historically 3%. Plus you've got 4% overhead cost, which is like your spend rate to maintain that quality of life. You've got the house, the vacations, the cars, education, travel, whatever, call it 4%. Plus the exponential growth of your family because people tend to have other people. So if you have two or three kids and they have two or three kids, next thing you know, you're dealing with 10 households, 12 households. You put that all together, plus the taxes, which you can try to avoid, but on some level, you're going to be a taxable entity. You put that all together to maintain that corpus over call it 100 years, you've got to be clipping 10 to 15% net returns annually. That's just really damn hard to do. You know, if you think about groups that have been able to compound that type of return, you're talking about Berkshire Hathaway and some very successful private equity hedge funds. But small businesses, it's very challenging to do and you've got to go way out on the risk spectrum to achieve it. So part of it is this concept that, that you mentioned of second generation spends it, third generation has no money kind of thing. But also it's just really, really, difficult to pull off um, in a thoughtful manner. And also, a family office is a small business. And small businesses in America fail, about 84% fail rate within three years. So you're dealing with a very difficult financial return model. And you're also just dealing with an intrinsically hard business model because you're probably going to have 10 employees or less. Um, so you've got to deal with compensation retention, continuation, and then, you know, inevitably you're gonna get a black sheep thrown in there, which is gonna cause some trouble for the family. So all those things put together, um, it's really hard. That's why when you meet a small business owner and they're a fifth generation, sixth generation owner, 
be in an operating company or a family office, I immediately just applaud them for surviving because it's a jungle out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, you think about the S&P 500 stock index, they get about a 20% annual turnover. You and I having this conversation 20 years ago talking about how, you know, <coughs> these companies that, that are no longer relevant were high flyers. It's just challenging. I didn't know the I didn't know the numbers that ten to fifteen percent annual yield or compounding to just to maintain the dollar to maintain that that's that is significant but not impossible not it is, impossible it but. is significant and it has to be thoughtfully and purposefully done with people like you I mean that's that's what you do is to help manage that so what's this what's this deal where you're working on the advisory team to help protect generational wealth from one generation to the next yeah and there's a lot of cliches that get thrown around but to answer your initial question of how to prevent that from happening, that dynamic of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves, you need to really encourage entrepreneurship in every generation. There needs to be a wealth creation in every generation for the company or for the family to survive. And so a lot of what I do is um, help people think through kind of what my father-in-law did with me, which is he initially gave me $100,000 and he made three introductions for me and then said, you're on your own, which at the time was really frustrating because he could have stroked a much bigger check and he could have really helped me out on the investment side for sure with his buddies. But it taught me a skill set that now I can use for the rest of my career, right? How to effectively raise capital, how to be a business development person, how to do sales and marketing. And so I work with other families um, to help them navigate this very difficult process of encouraging entrepreneurship internally. Because if you think about it, nobody really wants to, um, nobody feels bad for these people, right? Because they have money. But it can be a challenging thing when your father or your father-in-law or somebody in your company just had massive financial success. And it feels like no matter how hard you work or what you accomplish, it feels de minimis in comparison to what these people had done, right? So you've got to reorient the conversation and say, you know, you do have a specific skill set, you do have the ability to do things. And because the family, not just the actual physical capital, but the human capital the family has within their network, let's go do something special together. And like, you have the ability to take huge amount of risk as long as you're okay with understanding that that downside might be hard in your ego, but compared with somebody who doesn't have the, the infrastructure or the cushion that you do, there's real no downside. I mean, you're not gonna go homeless, right? And so it's just trying to change that dynamic internally and that conversation internally with some of these families to say, you know, you can do these things. But your, your key, what I'm hearing you say is that the encouraging, the encouragement of entrepreneurship through those generations protects that wealth better than anything else. Yeah, I mean, if you look at some families that have, you know, really done it right over the last 25, 50 years, they do a really nice job of that. I mean, you can protect the assets, but in my experience and opinion, the quantitative stuff, like the investments, they typically don't torpedo these families. I mean, they all have really smart people working with them to, on trust and estate planning, on taxes, on the investment side. What blows them up is the, is the qualitative stuff internally. You don't get along with your sister. 
your brother turns out to be a drug addict because he's depressed. Um, you know, somebody has a unhealthy relationship with their father and then it, it just kind of ends up in litigation and blowing up or the family can't do Thanksgiving dinner together. Those are the things that really lead to that wealth destruction because if you're not all on the same page, you don't have the unification anymore. You don't have the power of the corpus because it's been, it's been torn apart. Those are far and away the bigger issues to deal with in my opinion. With your family, with your wife's family, is it a fair question for me to ask uh, how many generations that has been, been going? Um, we refer to my father-in-law as G1, and my wife is the oldest member of G2, so second generation, and my kids would be G3. But um, it's really just for simplicity. My father-in-law, his family um, is an old New York family. So I don't know how many generations it would be, but they signed the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. They helped finance the Revolutionary War. They've been successful entrepreneurs since the 17th century. Wow. So there's something there, right? I mean, my father-in-law is a trauma surgeon by trade, came to Vanderbilt in 1984 to start the trauma department, start the Lifelight program, level one trauma surgeon his whole career, inherited some money from his father, a lot, and ended up starting a mezzanine debt finance business that went public in the 90s. I mean, there are just certain families that have seen the, the fact pattern play out and they understand how to leverage capital and they understand how to create wealth. I mean, his family has done a really nice job through very different, I mean, they used to be in the cemetery business. They own the Louisiana Lottery, um, huge real estate holdings in New York. They've done various things, but and, and even he would say this, every three to five generations, it's just very difficult to maintain. You're talking about families that have 100 households that they're supporting after a little bit. You know, cousins, second cousins that you don't know, that you can't see, that live. And now it's even harder because it's such a dispersed human landscape. I mean, I talked to some families that have people in Southeast Asia, Europe, all across the U.S. It's really challenging. Um, so I think it's just natural to cycle through some of these partnership arrangements. But yeah, I mean, his family's just had a huge amount of success over a very long time. Well, what, and the reason I ask that question is that, that what it sounds like he did with you is that as a generation two, part, part of that generation two, is that he did the thing you said helps secure the assets long term, which is encourage entrepreneurship. So by giving you that seed money and saying, here's a couple of introductions, go do it rather than I'm gonna show you how to do it. And here's all the steps that had, he encouraged entrepreneurship. So you had to take risk, you had to innovate, you had to discover it on your own, which the law of discovery tells us that we learn my, more by what we discover than what we're told. Failing on my own. Yeah, yeah. so I, I love that he did that to you. And I, I am really also very pleased to hear that when I asked you about your definition of success, that your first answer was, I wanna make sure that my kids don't grow up to be jerks. Yeah. Cause there is this, there is this joke uh, about the third generation being a, a worse word than jerk, you know, when we're talking about wealth. And I think that that's plays into your perspective. So let me ask you this. So um, when I started doing this show, one of the things that I wanted to discover was I have this theory about how success happens for entrepreneurs. 
and I wanted to discover if it was true across every industry and every person I could talk to. So I'm going to run that theory past you, right. kind of in this part of our conversation, and see if you agree. So what I've discovered is there are these five keys to success that happen for entrepreneurs, and and you're a successful person. You've created a successful businesses, um, and you're managing many, many other successful businesses through your firm. So I think that the first key to success is that of passion, willingness to endure, which is what that word really means. It doesn't mean like it. It means, it doesn't mean enjoyment. It means I'm willing to endure. How has passion with that, as that definition factored into your story of success? This is such a good question. And I totally agree with you. Um, I read Atomic Habits, it's mm -hmm. a great book. And it was really enlightening to me because the, the biggest thing I took away from it was um, the author talks about your superpower. Now we each have a superpower. And he thinks it's misconstrued because oftentimes people think it's, it's this ability to do something that nobody else can do, or you're just that much better than everybody else. And in reality, it's just your willingness to do something over and over and over again and not mind it. And that would be something that other people would hate doing, right? So my superpower is pitching people and networking. It's not that I love it. I don't wake up in the morning being like, I wish I had 20, 15 minute phone calls on my calendar length today where I just said the same thing over and over again, answer the same questions because I know what they're going to be. But I don't mind doing it. I mean, you know, I have no problem having 100 pitches and having 99 people tell me no. I think for a lot of people that really hits their ego pretty hard. And when I tell people this, aspiring entrepreneurs, people want to be real estate sponsors, like you're in the business of getting no's if you're going to be a capital raiser. When I, I send an email out to 5,000 people in my distribution list, maybe 500 respond and 50 end up participating in any offering I have, which is great. It's a great business. But if you think about it, it means 4,550 people are telling me no every month. Not many people can hang with that. And that's passion. I that love is it. passion. So that's helped you succeed. And, I, and your story from earlier about cracking the code is, hey, get these 100 people and I go ask these questions and I work my way back up through mm -hmm. there. There is a passion to help you you know, go through that to get to success. Well, the second, Brian, the second key to success, you got passion. The second key is being in the right place at the right time. So for you, what do you, as you look back on your life, what do you see as the right place and time for you to, that has led you to be successful? Yeah, I mean, you can call it luck, you can call it serendipity, but um, I remember I was practicing law downtown Nashville and a lawyer friend of mine that I knew through Green Hills Rotary, he was an intellectual property attorney here in Nashville. He called me and said, I've got a friend coming in from New York. They used to work together in the city. Would you want to have lunch with him? He's also, a, a, you know, wants to do real estate. And I'd had my lunch meeting cancel on me. And I thought, well, sure, I'll show up and meet this person. You never know where the conversation is going to go. And within 10 minutes of sitting down with this guy, I said, this dude's my partner. Like he'll compliment me perfectly. It's exactly who I need to make this thing happen. And I bugged him for nine months before he actually had a serious conversation with me. But that one lunch meeting, and it's funny because we joke internally, Shane Cortese is the intellectual property attorney that made the introduction to my partner. I don't think he fully understands it, but I mean, 
that lunch meeting, that introduction has led to $500 million of real estate being bought. That's crazy. Well, that plays into the third, which is knowing the right people. So you got passion, you got place, you got people. They all start with these. <laughs> so you got passion, place, and people. So Shane Cortese, mm. and then your the, the gentleman who ended up becoming your partner that you met at that lunch that day. Are there other people in your life that you can say, hey, these are the people that had I not known wouldn't be successful? Yeah, I mean, I'm 39, um, and I've been doing this for 11 years now. I still consistently underestimate the power of networks. So if you have the ability to join an affinity network of people who are doing incredible things in whatever world that is for you, don't worry about the membership fee. Don't worry about the process. Join the network and meet the people and talk to them and get as much free advice as you can. Because what I found is my social network because of my wife, then it was the Phoenix Club, my alumni network from school, and recently I joined YPO, and it's just changed my life. Because you have this, I mean, YPO is 20,000 members, I think, globally. And all I do is ask people for 15, 20-minute conversations. And because you've got this passport of you know, access, they'll open the kimono and they'll tell you everything. And you realize really quickly that even though you think you're doing great in your little world, these people have solved the problems that you're facing a hundred times before. And you can lessen the learning curve in, I mean, the amount of time that I would have spent on things that otherwise um, these people have solved for me, it's just remarkable. So, and that adage of you will assume the level of people that you hang out with, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the lessons I've learned from these folks who are five, 10 years ahead of me, it's just unbelievable. I mean, this is how we met, right? Through some folks that the standard, and you can say your network is your net worth and all that kind of stuff, but I mean, it's just true. And that's what's so cool about what's happening now with the industry is social media, LinkedIn, Zoom, podcasts, multimedia, um, digital, um, marketing, you can go on, you, go check out my presentation. It's free. All I want is your email address. I spent five years of my life being told no over coffee meetings and put together a 15 minute presentation to teach you how to raise money. It's unbelievable. You just got to know where to look and yeah. who to ask. That's great. I love the comments you're making about the networking and knowing the people and how we still, to this day, people like you and me who know how powerful it is, yet we still completely underestimate how powerful it really is because it is it is the key. I think you get, it starts with passion, and it's also been the right place at the right time, which is not, not as much luck as people think it is because you have to put yourself in those places at times and then knowing the right people. But the fourth key is that of preparation. In other words, having the know-how to pull this thing off that you're building to be successful. So in your story, Brian, it seems to me like the preparation, the, the, the know-how was from, hey, I, I'm, I'm learning law, and then I'm going to, I went to this, this course that Michael Burcham did. Just those tiny little things prepared you, now I know. And of course, also being connected with your wife's family was a preparation, not just being connected with them, but it prepared you for this. Is that the way you see it, or is there something different? No, I, I would agree. Um, 
when you're in the middle of it, right, when you're studying for the bar exam or you're grinding through whatever school project you're working on, it can seem really disconnected to the world and irrelevant, but it's all building up and leading to something. To your point, though, you need to know when that opportunity comes across and, and when to move forward with it. But it's all leading up to something, all that time that you're putting into and the effort you're putting into it. So I think there's something to be said for preparation. But, and it's interesting because there's a lot of people now within my space who are talking about, you know, blocking time on their calendars and the power of no. Man, I'm a huge proponent of the power of yes. Like saying yes to a phone call, saying yes to a meeting, saying yes to an introduction, saying yes to a referral. Um, so I think there's the preparation part, but there's also just, you know, have the confidence to move forward with something and have the ability to get comfortable with um, with failure. Yeah. I think it's just important. Well, failure is a much better teacher than success. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you, <laughs> I, can, I think we all kind of know instinctually what to do within our businesses. But again, through the networking, talking to somebody who's in their 60s or 70s and them saying, these are three things that you just simply cannot do, that will save you a lot of heartburn. Yeah. The fifth P, the fifth key, which is also a P, is that a plan. And what I'm referring to is not a business plan, but a financial plan. What's the plan financially to support the thing you're going to do? So what was your plan when Priam got started and then Excelsior got started? What was the financial plan to how am I going to finance this thing to get to the place where we can do what we need to be to be successful? Yeah, and that goes to what I alluded to earlier about there's the understanding of how to raise capital, but there's also a broader context here of understanding what those capital partners look like. And so it's important for people who are listening who um, are in, the, I'll go real estate specific here. Um, there's a misconception, I think, in our business that there's this golden chalice of this key to success that is finding this big family office or finding institutional capital and raising a $250, $350 million fund with institutional capital. And when I say institutional capital, I mean endowments, pension plans, and these big groups, insurance companies. Because once I do that, I'll be able to just you know freely run around. The reality is that that cost of capital, which I really didn't understand when I first got into the business, and people used that term, I didn't know what it meant. The cost of capital within institutional space is very high. And what I mean by that is they are going to have very strict terms, their fees are going to be difficult, and they're going to be very sharp-elbowed, which is a Wall Street term, meaning that they are going to be assholes to you. So you're, you are doing that. And we went down that path for a very long time and we thought, man, we really want to do this. There was a conference I went to for emerging managers and they said that 85% of all the institutional capital raised for commercial real estate within the last 10 years has been raised by five firms. So there's just not a lot of room there. The flip side, there's 13.1 million accredited investors in America today. Less than 3% have exposure to alternatives or private equity or private real estate. Huge opportunity. What are you doing? Yeah. You just need to convert 10 basis points 
and you'll have an unbelievable business. These people are begging for access, but they don't know how to get it. Meanwhile, institutional people, there's a thousand of them, or what the number is. It's a defined universe. They're not getting any more endowments. They're not making more pension plans. They know exactly the leverage that they have. So I think when you're looking about capital, which every business needs to grow, I would think less about how you're going to do it than ultimately what the end game is for the business that you want, right? So for us, we flipped the table and said, okay, well, no, not many people are working with this group. There's a lot of them. And nobody in our business wants to raise three to $5 million of equity per deal. It's considered the most difficult amount of money to raise because it's above the weekend warrior, below the institutional groups. And so that's all we do because there's just nobody else there. Wow. So. so we have a lot of people that listen to this show that, of course, are entrepreneurs and they're on all ends of this, the, the spectrum of entrepreneurship. First, first year, pre-entrepreneur, uh, pre all the way to the non-figure entrepreneur and in, anything in between. But I want to give you the opportunity as we close out our conversation today on the show, I want you to speak to that first side of the spectrum. As someone who's been successful in building businesses, raising capital, what is your advice to that side of the table? What would you say to those people? To the first time? Yeah. The early entrepreneurs, early stage, maybe haven't even started, but they're early. As someone who's not early anymore, you're successful in your own right. What is your advice to those people to get where you are? There's a reason that we were given two ears and one mouth. I'd spend a lot more time listening to people and being empathetic than thinking about how you're going to create the next toaster oven that's a little bit better. I mean, if you think about people that have created wildly successful businesses, some of them are um, great new ideas that came out of the ether, right? Like Google. The majority of really successful people I know have a pretty standard business in a fairly standard industry that's fairly old world, like real estate, and they're just better than the average bear. So I would stop banging your head against the wall thinking about how you're going to create new widget that nobody's ever heard of and a little bit more time thinking about industries that seem to be antiquated inefficient run by a bunch of old people that don't understand technology and just do a little bit better than them you can create huge scalable businesses that way innovation how do you innovate around something that's already existing to make it a little better i like that it's good advice so how, if people want to get in touch with you and they say, hey, I like this guy, I want to talk to him, and maybe they're inv potential investors, they're in that 3% of people that, you know, let, or that 97% of people that don't have access to these alternative investments, how would they get in touch with you? Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So, you know, Brian Adams, Excelsior Capital, look me up, shoot me a note, and I'm happy to set up a call with you. And then you can go to the website, excelsiorgp.com. We have a ton of great content there, webinars, podcasts, white papers. Um, we have a really good investment network beyond just the real estate deals, other things that we do. So go check out the website and, and you can see the portfolio. And that's a great way to learn a little bit more about who we are and what we do. All right, great. So Brian Adams on LinkedIn, Excelsior Capital, and it's excelsiorgp.com yes, for your website. Brian, it's been a pleasure. I mean, I, and I, this is I, this is a conversation I think we could probably continue you and me over a over a bourbon or something at the standard. We can talk about this a little I, more. I'm delighted we can make it happen, and I'm ex I mean I don't know if it's a if it's a good 
uh, endorsement or not, but I mean, uh, maybe it's the last one in person. So, you know, I'm, I'm blessed to be here. So well, I'm glad, glad we did this. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing your insight. Appreciate it. Well, there you have it, another successful entrepreneur and his journey to success and really interesting insights into how money works and how, how we need to think about investing. So I want you to kind of re, I want you to think about what he talked about and his keys to that how his keys to success played out and what his definition of success is there. And if you happen to be in that uh, generation one of wealth builders like I am, I want you to think about how you're going to be able to pass that on to G two and G three and beyond. And maybe you need to reach out to Brian and reach out to his firm and say, okay, I need these alternative ways of of, of taking care of the capital. But, but at the end of the day, I love his, his answer about how do we protect that long-term, and that is through entrepreneurship. And that's why I do what I do as an entrepreneur coach, as I work with people just like you to help you accelerate your path to success, because speed is your friend. Going slow through this is not your friend, because you're going to be trampled by the other people that are going faster than you. That's why I created the Business Accelerator Group Coaching Program. It's eight hours of live coaching with me and a small group of no more than 12 entrepreneurs where I show you the four core strategies, exactly how to succeed and to accelerate that success. I'll teach you how to embrace delegation so that you know exactly how to delegate tasks to other people that they get them done. I'll show you how to eliminate stress from your life. I'll show you exactly how to establish the right systems and processes so that your business can run on an automated way that you can go do what you want and what you need to do. And then finally, I'll show you how to invest in people because investing in people is an investment in the future. So those four core strategies are what I teach in the Business Accelerator. Go to ExitWithoutExiting.com. That's ExitWithoutExiting.com. Sign up for the next group uh, cohort that's going to be starting very soon. It'll change your life. You'll walk away with, uh, with tools that will absolutely change the way you do business and could, as we talked about today, change generations of wealth for you and the generations to come beyond you. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Tune in again next time when I talk with yet another very successful entrepreneur about his or her journey to success. Until then, I'm the real Jason Duncan and Jesus is King. Thank you for listening to another edition of The Root of All Success with the real Jason Duncan. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, we invite you to visit therootofallsuccess.com to access the show notes and other helpful resources. Take charge of your business. Grow it from great to incredible. Join us again next time here on The Root of All Success. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.